0: Hello, I'm Jose García Moreno, and I'll be your host for this episode. The overall purpose of this podcast is to capture people, their complex and rich identities, and show who they are through their own stories. We're here with a dear friend, uh, dear friend of ACTI as well, Brian Trenner. He's actually the founding director of the LMU's Academy for Catholic Thought and Imagination. And the way that uh, Brian actually describes actually is an interdisciplinary research institute that seeks to encourage intellectual dialogue at LMU and to support faculty scholarship on a wide range of topics in the humanities, social science, arts, and sciences. Could you please just state uh, your name and your relation with Loyola Marymount.
1: My name's Brian Trainer. I'm a professor in the Department of Philosophy, and I've also got affiliate appointments in Environmental Studies and in Irish Studies here. I've been a professor at Loyola Marymount since 2001, I believe, fall of 2001. Came here as a visiting professor for a year and then uh, eventually migrated onto tenure track, and I've been here ever since.
0: Before we move actually into the purpose of this interview, which sure. I'm really fascinated, yeah. Can you just tell me the idea that actually, uh, uh, the seminal idea for ACTI, how did that came into fruition?
1: I didn't want um, another unit on campus to reproduce good work that's already being done by campus ministry or the Center for Ignatian Spirituality or other offices like that. And it felt to me like uh, one big gap was... Uh, intellectual life centered on, although not exclusive to, the faculty, right? I mean, you're a professor here at LMU as well, and uh, students are our reason for being here, right? They're the raison d'etre of of everything we do. But students come and go. They're gone in four years, right? Administrators come and go. Faculty, by and large, are here for a life. And so if you integrate faculty around conversations about... uh, the mission of the university, social justice, Catholicity, um, th- those things have a lasting change at the institution, I think, or a lasting effect.
0: I have been following your lead and the mission of ACTI, and it's very close to my heart, as you said, because of my of who I am and, uh, and, and, and because I believe in the sacramentality of the arts.
1: And I think that kind of language is really important so that— um, as I said, it's a really complicated question, I think, at any Catholic university about you know what it means to be Catholic. And I think what that means can vary from institution and can vary from person to person in the institution. But I think one way to make more people at home at the kind of Catholic university I hope LMU continues to be is to talk in alternative languages like the sacramentality of the arts, right? Where people don't think that there's a a specific creedal belief you have to sign on to to participate in this kind of research or this kind of discussion. The tragedy of the world is not just about the fact I'm going to die or even the people I love are going to die, but it's just the awful and almost literally unimaginable suffering that's going on all the time and it's just not in front of us, given the situation we're in right now. I mean, the, the world is full of unspeakable suffering yes. and unspeakable beauty, un, un, unimaginable beauty, yes. right? And it's, it's how to hold those two things together, both broadly in the world and in our lives individually. Our lives are just marked, indelibly marked by unspeakable, ineffable tragedy and unspeakable ineffable beauty and joy right and and to hold those two together is what i'm trying to do in this book without denying either one
0: and what brings us here specifically is that uh, brian just published uh, melancholic joy on life worth living published by bloomsbury academic and uh which is fascinating. I, I would like to tell you that it created this emotional response in me because it's full of this like nu- nuclear f- sentences and phrases. I mean the language is just explosive. It's so beautifully uh written. And uh so I would like to start with uh Gabriel Marcel. Uh so he's he uh he, what you wrote is that, that the ultimate tragedy is not my own death but the death of those I love. And I would say just to add to, uh, to the beauty of, 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 that concept that the ultimate tragedy of that ultimate tragedy is to witness the moment of death of those you love. And yeah. my father actually died in my arms. So, uh, and he had waited until I came back to crossover, right? So my way of experiencing that moment was full of uh, contradictions. And as your love, your loved one is fading fading away, your emotions are heightened, and in a way, you're uh, becoming part of this liminal world, if you wish, uh, a liminal gate that is open, but you're only able to imply it through the gaze of astonishment of that person that is lying next to you, which was really something that I will remember my whole life as the eyes of my dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, and time's slows but contradictorily it, it's framed with a sense of urgency and the person that you because the person that you love is fading away right and you want to say to them one last thing and something that but you want to say something that is meaningful and your brain is just playing back all those moments that you share with this person that you had in common and it has been said that those who are experiencing death will see their lives in a flash but i do I, I I do not know that, but i what i can tell you that I know is that that sensation is exactly what happened to me when I was experiencing death of my of my father and you you know this is my father i 'm talking about a lovely and generous father, and in that moment, I wanted to cry, but i couldn 't because I wanted to say something that was relevant. And how do you phrase the importance that that person had in your life, the love that that person unconditionally offered to you in life? And and, when, and so it went through my mind, across my heart, and out through my mouth. And what I said to him was, I love you. You were such a good father to me. Go in peace. And then he died, and I cried, leaning my head on his chest. And it felt that that moment was so long, but at the same time was so short. And after that, that liminal gate closed. And then I was back, and I realized that my wife and my daughter were just behind me. And, and then you wrote about Marcel, no one knows that but me. No one knows how to love like me.
1: Yeah, that's a really powerful example and a really powerful story. I mean... Um... I don't know how we find the words to express those sorts of things, right? And this, to, in some way, I think is the the power of the arts and the power of poetry, right? The longer I've been doing philosophy, the, the more I've come to love sort of um, literature and poetry. The longer I've been doing philosophy, the more I've come to love literature and poetry. Because I think... Philosophy I value a lot, and it, and it does, I think, a lot of good intellectual work, but um, it misses the boat on, on trying to account for an experience like the one you just articulated, right? Um, I think I, I quipped the other night when we were discussing melancholic joy in the library that uh, French philosopher Michel Serres says, only philosophy goes deep enough to show that literature goes still deeper than philosophy, right and and there I'd include poetry and the arts and stuff like that too, so um the reason I'm responding in that way, you know, I've thought before about what it would mean to say the last thing to someone I love and to know it's going to be the last thing I say to them, and what it what you'd want to say, and the reality is like nothing can the words can't capture what we're trying to say right they are ineffable um but but we we have to keep trying. And I think art and poetry is one of the ways we do that, which is one of the reasons in in Melancholic Joy, right? I hope that it's a philosophical book, but it's so like, self-consciously caught up with poetry and literature and other disciplines as well because of that. Because I don't think the kinds of questions I was struggling with, not answering, but struggling with... Um, are ones that I could, that I can answer philosophically. Um, yeah, that's both my parents are still alive, but my wife's parents have passed away. And my wife also, uh, like you had to travel back to another country to be with her father. And it was, um, you know, not clear she was going to make it in time and everything else. And I've heard the testimony of, from other people, uh, uh, like the testimony you just gave, and it's it's uh, it's very moving. It's hard to know what to do with those liminal spaces, right? Until you're there.
0: Before we dive into Brian's book *Melancholic Joy*, which is a significant reason for inviting him on the program, it is worth noting that Brian recites poetry from memory, and always encourages his students to memorize poems to navigate the unspeakable trauma endured in a human lifetime.
1: So this one is um, Jack Gilbert's, uh, a brief for the defense. Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they're starving somewhere else with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while someone in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude, and we must admit that there will be music despite everything. We stand at the prow again of a small ship anchored late at night in the tiny port. Looking over to the sleeping island, the waterfront is three shuttered cafes and one naked light burning. To hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come.
0: There was something that uh, really captivated me uh, in in your book. That it's a uh, because you you uh, you talk you talk about nothing. Well, you wrote about nothingness, yeah. and uh, one of my fav- favorite books, which probably is yours as well, is A Cloud of Unknowing. And for those uh, in the audience which don't know, it's actually uh, appeared in the 14th century, and it was already deeply influenced by translation of Dionysius Arepagita from Greek to Latin. Which was made by Erigena a couple of centuries before, in the ninth century, which was a very important discovery for uh, for the Catholic Church, and it really talks about the utter incomprehensibility of God, right? And so there's, and you wrote something really beautiful, which is, which it's it's in a way is, is that same thing, but with these beautiful words, the, the silent darkness between the stars, and uh, so la vía negativa. You know, the negative way starts with that unknowability of God because God is wholly other. But what is contradictory is that the author of The Cloud of Upknowing will say that God is unknowable save the power of of the intellect, right? Mm-hmm. So according to the author, the only way to know God is through love. And through love, you might enter in union with the divine. So it's the union with the divine. In the case of yoga and Eastern philosophy and Buddhism, of course... Praying is particularly pragmatic and physically and physical and praying leads to meditation and contemplation, but also learning how to breathe the moment, right? Which resonates with a mental prayer in the Catholic tradition of instruct the mind, move the will, and warm the heart. So what is the approach in melancholic joy or that you can uh, imply in melancholic joy towards a practice of? Uh, what is the the, the approach ho- towards praying, uh, or praying practice and melancholic joy, and how important it is for you in your argumentation?
1: I think there are lots of different ways we can uh, sort of reorient ourselves to attend to the presence, and sort of breathing practices and meditative practice, and and prayer is one of those ways. What I tend to focus on in the book, I think, is um, is attention, like real attentiveness to the particular moment in its uniqueness and in its particularity. And this is not something, obviously, I came up with. There are lots of other people um, that talk about it from from, uh, theologically talking about it in terms of the hexitas, the sort of individual thisness of things, from poets like uh, Jesuit poet uh, Hopkins, Jared Manley Hopkins, who talks about the inscape of things, their, their particular way of expressing themselves and being themselves in the world, to uh, sort of n- non-specifically uh, Christian thinkers. I, one of the things I do is environmental philosophy, and um, I think uh, sort of broadly spiritual but certainly not theistic thinkers like Thoreau speak a lot about attentive to unique, the unique particularity of things. Which brings us into, I think, both the, the specificity of the present moment and the particularity of a, a specific place, right? I mean, I think a lot, of, a lot of what happens in normal life is we sort of we move through on autopilot. And um, the different environments we move through, whether they're built human environments or sort of organic non-human environments become indifferent to us because we don't notice the unique particularities of those places. And the particularity of each moment becomes indifferent to us because we get caught up in sort of routinized habits that deaden us to the world. Um, I talk to my students about this all the time. You know, LMU students are so, so busy with things, and LMU faculty members as well, right? And uh, because we're so busy and we're so... Fixated on moving from point A to point B, or from task A to task B, we basically turn off between those things. We're not really thinking of them. So, um, when people are commuting to school, whether they do it on bicycle or car, they really they, they might be aware that they're at home and then aware when they're on campus, and they're kind of on autopilot right. between the two. Um, and I think that's also true with tasks that we sort of miss this sort of uh, we miss being in the present moment because we're always thinking of being somewhere else I mean one of the most haunting passages I don't have this one memorized well um, but I quoted in Melancholic Joy so uh Pascal, who's also the person anxious about the sort of silent darkness between the the stars, says, Look, if you attend to your thoughts, you'll always find them fixated on the past or the future, right? We're never in the present moment. If we're in the present, we're only here in order to get to the future in some way. But at the end of this little passage, he says, Because we are always planning to be happy, like I will be happy when Mm -hmm. something happens, because we are always planning to be happy, it is inevitable. That we shall never be so. And every time I read that, it's like a kick in the gut. Because uh, you know, I have an ego as well that I'm still trying to defeat, and I'm ambitious in certain ways that are admirable, and probably in other ways that are less admirable. And insofar as I fixate on the future, when I finish the next book, when I uh, deliver this lecture in class, when I get to summer break. That that all that kind of thinking just makes me miss everything that's happening right now, which is the only thing that there is.
0: You wrote something that it's uh, that it's really uh, close uh, to many things that I think about, that that is not something that happens to us, but rather something that we are. And it is funny, because as you know, I'm Mexican, and as you know, that sentence that you wrote is something that is deeply embedded in the Mexican culture, and it's not a morbid approach, but rather a celebration of life, and it's about the exceptionality of the opportunity of being alive. So northern cultures, and this is what I think personally, is that they really struggle with the concept of death and the, and, 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 and how it relates with the problem of evil. And there's, uh, Maria Schreiber actually wrote in the preface to Elizabeth Kubler-Rose and David Klessler in their book Grief and Griefing that this country is a grief illiterate nation. So it's a little bit like the idea of Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. Right. That is all an illusion. And this is Disneyland versus the, what you wrote, the dark aspects of reality, evil, finitude, fallenness, scene, the silence of God, absurdity, loss, etc. So so what is really interesting to me is that in a grief, illiterate nation, dark humor is considered obscene in relation to the brutal and even nature of reality, which in Mexico, humor is one of the most powerful tools against existential angst.
1: Grief illiteracy comes at a cost, because eventually it catches up to us, because we're all going to die, and the people we love are going to die. So insofar as we live in a world where we pretend that doesn't happen, and we sanitize that, and. We don't deal with illness, we don't deal with old age, we don't deal with decay, we don't deal with disability, we don't deal with all these sorts of uh, states that are part of the condition of being human. We're setting ourselves up for an awful catastrophe, right? Um, one One of the books that I most often, most frequently teach in my introductory classes, my freshman first year seminars and and some other courses is Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Illich, which is just uh, for, for the listeners, it's about a man who can't conceive of the fact that he himself is going to die and and how that crushes him. I mean, it destroys him existentially when he ends up dying, right? As a, as a young man, as a man our age, right? Um, he ends up um, uh, uh dying of, of, some, some sort of, uh, injury or disease of his kidney. And, uh, you know, you, you, you juxtapose an end like that. So Ivan Illich, um, in part because he can't come to grips with the fact he's dying and in part because he can't come to grips with the fact that he lived his life poorly, um, in the final days of his life, he has one period where he screams unceasingly for three days, like se- 72 hours of screaming. And it's not, I tell my students, because of physical pain, it's existential panic that, that's causing him to do that, right? Um, and then you juxtapose that with someone else, uh, a, a different deathbed scene, right? When, when Henry David Thoreau was on his uh, deathbed, tubercular, and... Um, Someone comes up to to speak to him. Uh, I think it was the same person who uh, famously jailed him in civil disobedience for not paying his taxes because of slavery. Um, and he said of Henry David Thoreau, "I've never seen a man dying with such peace, dying so so comfortably." Right. Um, another friend of Thoreau's, Parker Pillsbury. Uh, came up to him on his deathbed and said you're you seem so close you seem so close to the dark river i i almost suspect that you can see the opposite shore and thoreau back to this idea of being in the present says one life at a time right i'll get to that other life when i get there if there's such a thing right but right here i'm in this room with you let's attend to what's here in front of us so uh sorry, I, I I weaved a little bit away there from the grief illiteracy, but um I do think it's true that for cultures uh or families or individuals who are grief illiterate, there that comes at a real price. You might you might buy a little kind of temporary happiness by by ignoring the uh finitude and fallibility and death and disease. And you buy a little temporary happiness by ignoring those sorts of things in the world, by not looking at the poor people around you, by not looking at the sick people around you. But that, that kind of evasion only works for so long, and then the hammer blow falls, and it, I, think it, I think it wrecks people when that happens.
0: And collectively, how do you think it's uh, affecting the country?
1: I don't think, as a culture, we should try to sanitize... Facts of life. Um, you know that that doesn't mean that we should rub people's noses in it or or not be compassionate. I did some programming uh, here at LMU a few years back. Uh, I think it was the last year that I was running Acti, where I brought uh, members from one of the local LARSh communities to give talks here at LMU. In part because while LMU is admirable in in all sorts of respects right um i i just don't see a lot of people with disability on campus right it's a it's a it's a part of the human family it's a part of of the human reality but it's you know we're in southern california it's it's a highly image driven society it's about youth it's about beauty, it's about health, and we don't deal with age, with infirmity, with death.
0: It's so uh, devastating and so sad and uh, so uh, so much pressure on your shoulders that you stop moving, right? So you neglect, the, so the, the dog has been associated with this symbol of, uh, of neglect, of uh, taking your life in your own hands, and what i what I really like is that uh, Panofsky actually writes about how this neglected dog symbol actually is a contrast to productive calm
1: i 'd be a little careful thinking of it in terms of productivity but but yeah, maybe activity would be better because you know I, again i don't i don't want to think that <laughs> you know I, I joke all the time uh with students as well that you know i come from a good irish catholic family of anxiety and depression and substance abuse and alcoholism and all all those other sorts of things too not that we've all got it but but there's that there's that uh familial uh tendency towards it and and you know i i get i've i've had uh dark moments myself or or those of friends and family members where you say look you know, try and keep active, try and keep busy, because we know medically now that, you know, one of the dangerous things about depression is you don't want to leave the house, you don't want to do anything, and that just makes the depression worse. If you have kind of force yourself to get out, it, it takes the edge off it a little bit to some degree. But if, I, if we bracket that sort of medical diagnosis for the moment, um, I just want to be careful about saying, like, you know, be productive. And the Japanese have this concept that I reference in the book, mono no aware, right? Which is this appreciation of the the kind of transient beauty of things. And it would be associated with the Japanese, for example, cherry blossoms, which it's the national flower of Japan. They think of it as the most beautiful flower uh, in nature when it blooms in the spring, but it's also the most fragile, right? The first wind that blows by they knocks all the petals to the ground. And for this particular aesthetic in Japan, I'm not saying it's universal for all Japanese people, but for this specific aesthetic, um, that's, that's humanity, right? It's this incredible, beautiful miracle of life and understanding and beauty and love that as far as we know happens nowhere else in the entire vast universe. And it's there for a second and then it's gone.
0: While Advocate has listeners struggling to balance between joy and sorrow, we wish to close with some highlights from an on-campus event with Brian Trenner. Brian addressed a packed house at the Hannon Library on campus. He gave generously and compassionately to those in attendance. From the present active director to our founder, Acti and Brian continue to find new ways of understanding humanity.
1: Even for privileged, successful, and optimistic people, life is marked, perhaps even inextricably characterized, by monotony, boredom, impotence, fallibility, suffering, all lived under the specter of an inescapable death. Levertov is right. The marvelous does happen in our lives, but most of what happens, the vast majority of it, is at best boring or monotonous, and often anxiety-producing or painful. As Oscar Wilde put it, the secret of life is suffering. It's what's hidden behind everything. On a social level, the 20th century was an abattoir. Today, the doomsday clock is stuck at 90 seconds to midnight, the closest it's ever been. Yes, things have uh, improved in many respects, as uh, some of my good friends who are here have tried to remind me, um, and we can talk about that in the Q&A, but although things have improved in many respects, they've improved in many respects for humans, maybe not for the rest of the world, they're still quite bad. Think about COVID-19, think about the Ukraine, and they could and may well get much, much worse. Think about climate change. Or think about the next pandemic being H5N1 instead of COVID-19. And then in the background of all this, a sort of cosmic reason for pessimism, which is entropy destroys everything. The musica universalis is played in a minor key. Finally, when we take finally seriously, nothing lasts, nothing matters. The world is full of sound and fury signifying nothing. At least this is the argument. I'm going to qualify this before if you guys get too dark here. Um, we could endure the sound and the fury, but the signifying nothing leaves an incurable wound. Cormac McCarthy writes in The Road, which I'm sure some of you have read, he, the protagonist, walked out in the gray light and stood and he saw for a brief moment the absolute truth of the world. The cold, Relentless circling of the intestate earth, darkness implacable, the blind dogs of the sun in their running, the crushing black vacuum of the universe, and somewhere two hunted animals trembling like ground foxes in their cover, borrowed time and borrowed world and borrowed eyes with which to sorrow it. Now, there's a tendency to dismiss this kind of thinking, among other people I've spoken to, as melodramatic as the province of angsty teenagers. But I think the reasons for despair are deadly serious, and that anyone who doesn't see it, anyone who does not feel it in her gut, has either A, not thought about it carefully enough, or B, is hiding from the truth, about which more in a moment. Gabriel Marcel, who's a far cry from contemporaries like Sartre Camus or Chiaran, wrote that we must come to terms with the fact that reality in some way counsels despair, makes the case for it, argues for it, whispers it into our ears when we're alone. If I had time for another poem, I'd I'd try, I don't have this one memorized, I'd read you Philip Larkin's Obeyed. I started Melancholic Joy well before COVID, but I trust now everyone realizes how precarious our good fortune really is, how fragile our health, our democracy, our well-being, our climate, our happiness. So I think that there are truly awful things about the world that we need to face and about the human condition, more awful than most people are willing to face and come to terms with from the dubious and temporary citadel of their good fortune. The question is, how should we deal with this? Right? As a side note, my wife, who's joined us tonight, had quipped for multiple years while I was working on this that I was writing this book because I was too cheap to pay for therapy, right? (laughs) So I wanted to try and sort of work my way out of what I've just described to you. This is the first chapter, but we're not going to stay there. After the opening opening chapter that goes really all in in cataloging the reasons to despair... The next four chapters all explore different experiences that might, in some way, mitigate against that despair. And those four categories are joy, vitality, hope, and love. None of these phenomena, on my reading, defeat evil or overcome the reasons for despair. They are rather additional data points, so to speak, in deciding whether or not reality counsels despair. I won't be able to talk about all this tonight, so let me say something very brief about vitality, hope, and love, so that I can say something a bit more about joy before wrapping up. So I'm just gonna skip through the first three pretty quickly. Vitality is my term for speaking about the experience of our embodied insertion into the material world. Philosophy has generally treated this in terms of the ways in which our bodies are limited, the ways in which they fail us or deceive us, the inevitability of their decay and their death, I, however, explore embodiment in terms of our fittedness for the world, the way our body in the world tells us that we belong here, that this is our home. The body has its own kind of insight and wisdom, and it reveals certain kinds of truths that we tend to miss when pursuing the goal of disembodied rationality, which is a big hallmark of philosophy. I treat hope not in terms of wish fulfillment for the future, as Robinson Jeffers quips in a poem called uh, The Answer, We should not be duped by dreams of universal justice or happiness. These dreams will not be fulfilled. But rather, not in terms of wish fulfillment, but rather in terms of affirmation of and fidelity to what is here and now. Not a hope for something that may or may not happen, and all this will eventually fail, but rather a hope in some particular reality, a person, a place, a world, ultimately in reality itself. So the distinction between hope for and hope in. And then I discuss love in a variety of different ways, but build towards a reflection on a particular kind of love, appreciative love, that is, so far as we know, and this is maybe for any of my students from class this semester, so far as we know, distinctive of human beings. that human beings are the beings that can love the world appreciatively appreciative love is disinterested love for a thing itself for its intrinsic goodness independent of any good it has for me independent of any relationship it has to me i developed this theme under a number in a number of ways but particularly with respect to more than human nature where i think because of its inhuman otherness we find or are called to appreciative love more often and more clearly than in other circumstances so i'm happy to circle back to any of those if it's sort of little, little spark in someone's head, vitality, uh, hope, or love. But let's spend a, a moment thinking a bit more carefully about joy. Evil exists, but... Right? And every time you hear that in a sentence, there's like, I'm not a racist, but... Right? You, you know what's coming after that. Um, so I want to replace the but with an and. Right? Not torture and genocide and cancer and Alzheimer's are evil, but... But torture and genocide and cancer and Alzheimer's are evil. They are evil. It sucks that people suffer those things. It's awful. And, and what? And nevertheless, the glory of life, love, beauty, joy, and wonder are seemingly, if we're attentive to them, inextinguishable. As Marilyn Robinson writes in Gilead, which you should all read, there are a thousand, thousand reasons to live this life every one of them sufficient. Okay. Um, the understanding that we glean from the and is unlike the explanation proffered by the but. The and does not claim that we can escape, solve, or explain evil. It doesn't downplay or dismiss the reality of suffering. At best, it helps us to cope with evil by reminding us of the, reminding us of the background of goodness against which evil takes place. Okay, so the final conclusion here, and then we can get to discussion. So what does this look like in practice? How, how can we... How can we do this? How can we live in a world in which we, we all suffer? Everyone here suffers and is going to suffer more, right? How do we live in that life without succumbing to despair? I want to take a, a cue from a philosopher named Paul Ricoeur, who in talking about faith says, look, a lot of people begin life with a, a certain kind of childlike faith when you're a little kid growing up, right? It could be faith in religion, it could be faith in your parents. As a teenager, maybe it's a kind of political faith. And a lot of times that first innocent, naive faith is shattered at some point, right? Something horrible happens and your your five-year-old faith that God is in heaven and all is right with the world gets a kick in the belly. Or your the politician that you admired is, is pulled out because of some... Uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Scandal. Thank you so much. Um, so that 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 first faith is destroyed in a way, right? Now, what comes after that? When your faith is destroyed, you you might despair. That happens. People, it does happen to people. The, the theist becomes an atheist. the the political The passionate political person becomes apolitical and destroyed. But there's another option, right? Okay. The standard options to this kind of loss of faith about the world, about despair, about melancholia are denial. So some people try and deny it, right? You start off thinking the world is great and then something awful happens in your life and you try and deny it. You try to pretend you haven't seen what you've seen. But as Huxley remind us in a different context, a mind expanded by new experience can never go back to its old dimensions. So denial never really works. It's never really satisfying. Other people try to get by with some form of distraction, consumerism seems to be the uh, preferred method for many Americans. You can buy your way to bliss, or at least try to do so. Others opt for work, become a workaholic, even if it's meaningless work, just to keep busy. So you've got no time for big questions. Hedonism, generally of a shallow and timid variety, is another popular option. All of these buttressed by a kind of willed ignorance that tries not to think about the bad things. just not going to I'm not going to look at the homeless people on the street. I'm not going to look at the injustice that I see. I'm not going to think about other things. When the joy of first night tastes shattered, some small number may actually despair, but since true despair is unendurable, ending either quickly with the pistol or slowly by the bottle, that's not really a sustainable response either, right? So what is a possible response? Working on Paul Riker's model, you can, after, dis- after doubt... In your faith, after your first faith is shattered, you can reclaim your faith in what he calls a second naivete. That doesn't mean going back to it blindly and trying to believe again like the child, right? It means going back in light of the things that caused you to lose faith in the first place and to consciously, willfully re embrace it. To give a non religious example, a spouse who's betrayed, right? her faith or his faith in the partner, their faith in the partner is destroyed, right? There's been some deep, profound betrayal. The the consequence there may well be divorce. Everyone moves on, right? Lives are shattered. But it's also possible that they navigate the crisis towards some new kind of reconciliation, some new relationship after which they love each other again. It's not the way they loved each other before what happened, but it's, a, it's another naivete, right? It's choosing the naivete of, I love this person. I believe in God. I believe life is worth living despite the suffering. So in the case of joy, too, and melancholia, I think we can come to a second naivete. In order to do so, we have to cultivate new eyes that can look at the world differently. I don't really like Malik's uh, way of grace, way of nature distinction here, which he, he pulls from... Uh, uh Thomas Kempis imitation of Christ but but if we were to uh uh preserve that we can choose to look at the world with the way of grace rather than the the way of nature and that's what the book is about it's not about some joy that we get after melancholia we can sweep it into the dustbin hide it in the closet and not look at it anymore that that's a that comes at too high a price for myself i'm sorry to leave you here but that i think is what we get that's the that's the joy of an aware adult. And I think it is a joy. I I don't think of this, as Brad was saying, I don't think of this as a sad book. I think of it as a broken world, but I think we can be joyful in it. We've got responsibilities for the brokenness as well, but we can be joyful in it. I think, my readers, my friends, we should all be both more heartbroken and sad for the ways in which suffering and loss seem to be woven into the fabric of being. And at the very same time, be much more grateful and joyful for the miracle that things are rather than are not, the incredible beauty of it all, and as Brad said, the incomparable gift, that we are here to witness it, even for a short time. And with that, we should maybe do some Q&A. Okay. <laughs>
0: We thank you for listening. I hope our listeners can glean some wisdom from this interview. I produced this episode with Alex Thurner, who also served as editor. Please join us again for another Advocate installment.